It's good to be together on this Friday night. We have proclaimed truths to one another in these songs. Calendars are interesting for us. The calendar tells us it is Good Friday. And our calendar year marks the coming of Christ to the earth. We're somewhere around 2,023 years since he came-ish. And the whole world recognizes this. And much of the world stops on a Friday evening and, and calls it good. What is good about Good Friday? After all, this day on our calendar marks the most abominable event in history. That moment when the leader of the nation of Israel exclaimed, We have no king but Caesar. When a Jewish mob cried out, Crucify him, and called for the execution of the Lord of glory. When humanity rose up in its highest and most heinous rebellious act against God. When the king of all men was beaten by his subjects. The creator murdered by his creatures. The light of the world snuffed out. The hope of humanity was bruised, bloodied, and buried. This was by all accounts bad. Very bad. The worst miscarriage of justice. The most despicable of crimes. But Good Friday is very good because it was no accident that killed Jesus. It was very much on purpose that Jesus laid down his life, gave up his own spirit. He was no victim, dragged away, unwilling to some tragic, pitiful end. And he was no martyr, hoping by his death to encourage some uprising after a famous demise. No, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, came as an intentional substitute, standing in for others who deserved to die. And Good Friday is good because of what Christ accomplished there on the cross. Before he gave up his spirit, he declared from that cross, from that emblem, implement of execution, it is finished. What was finished? The payment for the redemption of all who would believe. A Sunday morning would prove that these were no empty words on the lips of Christ. And we can rejoice, friends, we who find shelter in the shadow of the cross. On a somber Friday night, we can celebrate. Because our sins were paid for completely and totally by his death. His resurrection on a Sunday morning would prove unmistakably that the Father who crushed him had accepted his payment as substitute for the justice we deserved. I want to turn your attention this evening to a Bible verse. There are some Bibles up here. If you don't have a Bible this evening, some men would love to distribute these to you. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to have one as a gift from us. So just put your hand up. Let us know that you need a Bible this evening. I'd love for you to be able to follow along. And I want you to turn in your Bibles this evening to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to examine the logic of one simple statement in Galatians 2.21. One verse 
that helps us to remember all over again what it was that Jesus accomplished. For Jesus did at the cross what none of us could do and what every one of us sinners desperately needed. Galatians 2.21 states this. This is the pen of the Apostle Paul. And these are the words of God. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through law, then Christ died needlessly. I want to examine the logic of this verse for a few moments as we meditate on the death of our Savior. To nullify here is to reject something as invalid. Whatever's going on in this verse, something, if believed, would declare the death of Christ to be a nothing, to declare it to be invalid, to dismiss it as in vain or empty, to reject it as worthless. And the logic Paul lays out here is, is first of all, he says, I do not invalidate grace. I, I do not set it aside. I, I do not take the, the grace of God, that free, unmerited gift of God's love, and set it over here as nothing. Why? Because if righteousness comes from law, in other words, if you could attain what is demanded of you, a perfect record, God's standard of righteousness, if you could attain that, if you could merit it, if you could get it, if you could buy it, if you could earn it, if you could practice it, if there was some measure of religious duty you could accomplish to achieve it, if there is any way you could get righteousness on your own, then Christ died for nothing. And I hope we would say this evening that Christ did not die needlessly, and therefore righteousness does not come by law, and therefore anything that purports to merit righteousness by some human achievement, some religion, some good works, some human effort, some human ability, nullifies grace. It sets God's grace aside, sets it over there as nothing, and puts in the place of God's grace, God, look what I've done. Look who I am. Isn't it shiny? Aren't I beautiful? And the replacement of God's free gift of righteousness by faith with human merit declares Christ died for nothing. That's the point of this verse. Some die in vain. Think about the last kamikaze pilots of World War II suicidally flying their airplanes into the oceans for nothing when the outcome of the war was inevitable. Think of the last few soldiers to be killed in the American Civil War when the outcome was done and the terms of peace had already been drawn up. Did Jesus die in vain? Consider what he endured. In the garden, he said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium. They gathered a Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a robe on him of scarlet. Scarlet. 
After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him in mockery and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him. And they took that reed and they began to beat him on the head. And after they mocked him, they took off the scarlet robe, they put his own garments, and they led him away to crucify him. In the words of Isaiah, the prophet that were read earlier this evening, he was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. But we did not esteem him. He carried our griefs, he bore our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to his own way. But Yahweh caused our iniquity to fall on him. Oppressed and afflicted, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. Like a sheep silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of the people. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. And Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And you've contemplated crucifixion. No doubt you've thought about what it would be like to have nails driven through wrists and through feet and to be placed onto wooden beams by those nails to be hung in midair as a mockery before men and as a scandal and a judgment before God. To dangle between heaven and earth, bleeding out, asphyxiating, weakening, until there is no strength left to hold up a human body on those nails. To see Jesus there, the righteous one, the just in the place of the unjust, the perfect Lamb of God, the beloved Son. And he did no wrong. To see him there as a substitute. Christian, you must personalize these things. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf. It was my death that he died. It was my sin that he carried. It was the wrath of God against my sin that he bore. When you think about what Jesus looked forward to at the cross in such awful anticipation... Was it the physical pain that he dreaded? No doubt it was the infinite wrath of his father against sin and the awful thought that he himself, the sinless one, would become sin for us that he dreaded. And he drank the cup 
of the wrath of his father down to the dregs. So that for those in whose place he stood, there would be none left to drink. No wrath left, no judgment left, no condemnation for those who by faith would be in him. And so if righteousness comes through law, then Christ died for nothing. In vain, to no effect, for no purpose. Do you understand the logic? If you could make your own way to heaven by being nice, being good, then Christ went through all of that for nothing. He was mocked for nothing and beaten for nothing and spit upon for nothing and crucified for nothing. He bore the wrath of his father for nothing. How good do you have to be to get into heaven? James 2 tells us that one breach of God's holy law is as if you've broken the whole thing. All of us clearly are lawbreakers by definition. We've already busted the standard. There's no going back. There's no way to fix what has been broken by any resources we have. Anyone who believes somehow that he is good doesn't understand God's standard. Romans 3, there is no one who is good, not even one. There is none righteous. Even our relative good, we're perhaps not as bad as we could be and, and maybe we compare ourselves to other badder people. And all of our relative goodness, according to God, is as filthy rags. If you think that God's standard of absolute perfection can be met by good deeds, you will try in vain and you will die with nothing but judgment. To prop up human achievements is to nullify grace. John Calvin said, if we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. And what resource is left to the man who puts away from himself the grace of God? What a tragedy it is when men reject the gospel. Decide, I will face God on my own, with my own resources. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But Yahweh weighs the heart. There is a ruling principle in the heart of man to trust self, to trust in his own goodness. The world is full of religions, philosophies, ideas. You boil them all down, there truly is only one religion in the world. It is a religion of human achievement. Whatever the forms, whatever the outward ceremonies, whatever the works and the rites and the things that must be done, it is all of only one type. Man from his own resources attempting to merit favor with God. And Christ's way is the only way. Abandon all hope. Abandon all hope of self. 
self-atonement, self-merit. Abandon hope of works and religion and niceness and goodness. We just don't have it in us. We've already broken the standard. Every religion of man props up man's ability to meet God's demands. And effect says, Christ died for nothing. God, I got this. I can do it on my own. Paul abandoned hope of meriting God's favor, though he had built his life upon it. He says, whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through law, but the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Think about human need. Think about all of the failed attempts through thousands of years of human history to live up to God's standards or to live up to made-up human standards. Friends, if you're here this evening and you just think, ah, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not desperately in need of of some reform outside of myself. I can take care of this. Maybe when asked, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? If your response is, well, I hope so. I'm going to tell you, friend, you don't have grace yet. You see, grace is a free gift that guarantees eternal life to those who have it. There's no I hope so in grace. It is, I'm clinging to Christ, and He is my righteousness, and He has purchased eternal life for me. To say, I hope I'll make it, is to place vain hope in yourself. You might say, I think I've done more good things than bad things. That's a lie upon a lie. I go to church. I'm nice to people. None of these things handed up to God make one eligible. Only the perfect righteousness of Christ available through the cross. To embrace the grace of God found at the cross means that you Admit that you cannot meet God's perfect standard. You abandon all hope of meeting God's kindness or meriting God's kindness by anything you could do. And you entrust yourself entirely to Jesus Christ and his death in your place. It means to come to terms with your own sin, to see yourself as an enemy of God, and to experience the love of God for enemies by casting yourself on Christ. You want to know what the Christian life looks like once the cross is embraced? Look up one verse in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified along with Christ, and it is, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What is the Christian life? It, it is a death to self. I don't want my old life. I'm willing for that life, as it were, to be crucified with Christ, to, to have died with him, and now to live a new kind of life, 
a life where Christ himself is in me, a a life lived in continual faith and dependence upon him, a life basking in his love. Paul here, reflecting on what Christ did for him, just says, he loved me and gave himself up for me. And Christians, we never get past that. We think about ourselves and the longer you live the Christian life, the the more your sin becomes clear. It was always there. But you see yourself up against him, the closer to him you get, the more wretched the picture and simultaneously beautiful that God would love someone like me. That Jesus, knowing me fully for who I am and what I would make of myself, went to the cross to pay for my sins. Staggeringly good news. It's what makes this Good Friday. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table this evening. The men are going to come forward now. The band is going to come up. They're going to lead us in another song as the elements are being distributed. These elements are symbols some juice, fruit of the vine, it, it represents the blood of Christ. And a wafer, bread, that represents the body of Christ. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread And he gave thanks in the presence of his disciples and and he broke this bread and he said, this bread is my body. It is for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And he held up a cup and he said, this cup is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant, a, a promise of forgiveness. And he invited his disciples to drink this in remembrance of him. The men will come and distribute a small glass of juice and a little piece of bread. Hold on to these. Don't take them yet. As the band leads us in a song, you'll have opportunity to think about what Jesus did in the place of sinners. These elements are not for everybody. They're only for Christians. If you're here tonight and Grace Bible Church is not your home, but Christ has a home in you, we would invite you to partake with us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, take the next few moments. Let let those elements pass by you. But don't let Christ himself pass you by. Surrender to him in faith. Christians will take the next few moments and reflect. Examine your own heart. Think about sins unconfessed. Take those before the Lord. Rejoice in forgiveness. Again, hold on to those while we sing together. I'll come back and lead us in remembrance.